Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, anti-hate and inclusion advocates are concerned about what the protest at this weekend's Pride celebration means for our city and for hate group activity. An announcement made this morning will see a studio plan to build Hamilton into a hub for film, TV, and digital media production. And the deadline for the Trans Mountain expansion is today. What's that mean for the country? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin the program today, I want to do a follow-up on the session that we did yesterday about uh, the Pride situation at Gage Park and the uh, the rally that was interrupted, basically, by a, a bunch of haters. Uh, I don't care what group it is, what you want to call it, but it was problematic. Uh, there were no arrests made then, apparently, uh, but we are told by Deputy Chief uh, that uh, there could be arrests imminent in this situation as the investigation continues. But why is this happening? Uh, is is this Hamilton City of ours that we love so much becoming a, 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 a cesspool now for these sorts of activities? The follow continues about this. I want to ask a couple of different angles on this one. I want to start with Bernie Farber, who is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Morning, Bernie. How are you today? Morning, Bill. I'm fine. How are you? Uh, well, I'm troubled. Uh, as, as somebody who was born and raised here and loves my city, I hate to see this sort of thing go on. This is the sort of thing we think, well, it's never going to happen in our community. Not only is it happening, Bernie, it's happening with far too much frequency. Well, it's not only Hamilton, so, you know, don't, don't feel special. Uh, the sad news is it's happening in, in many places, and uh, interestingly, in many small places. We, we have situations developing in Peterborough, similar situations in Ottawa, of course, Toronto is, is not without its, its problems. Uh, we're seeing it in Brampton. I mean, this is a bit of an epidemic. Uh, there's a certain feel in the air that these people have, which they, they feel emboldened uh, for all sorts of reasons that you and I have talked about in the past. But it's also summertime, and so it's easier to come out. Um, I, I think the, uh, the weather makes it easier to, uh, you know, to, to be present, and um, it, it, it's not a good time. Uh, and, and it's sad that Hamilton is, is facing its uh, uh, unfair share of, of haters and uh, hate groups. Well, and we again, we can get into names and labels here, and, 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 and that's part of their defense, I guess, is to say, no, we're not a hate group. This is all about free speech. Uh, and, and that's the excuse that they use, and that's, that's the standard excuse and the standard reasoning we get from these people. But, but the reality here is that they came here to cause trouble. And, and I'm sure you know the background on this, Bernie. One of the things that has bothered me is, is this group, or a semblance of groups, I guess, uh, have been rallying at City Hall for the last little while under the guise of free speech. Uh, and you, I, I think it's about time we had a discussion in all of these communities that, uh, that you've listed here about where we draw the line here. Well, I, I agree. We have to be careful not to violate law. I mean, people do have a right to, uh, to free speech. Sure. But hate, but hate speech, and I've said this very often, Bill, as you know, hate speech is not free speech. And, and there are certain lines that are crossed, and I believe these groups, and they come up with very fancy names in order to give themselves legitimacy. The groups, uh, the groups specifically that, uh, uh, you know, that, that was marching around Hamilton over the last short while, it's called the Canadian Nationalist organization, but in, in Florida, or the, I think they even try to call themselves the Canadian Nationalist Party, sort of giving themselves even political legitimacy, but they're there for one purpose, and that purpose is to sow the seeds of hatred and division. Uh, you know, they're, they're anti-immigrant, they're Islamophobic, and of course, uh, they throw in LGBTQ, and, and pride is, is the perfect kind of an example of, of what they see as different, that they can't cope with, and what they see as hateful. 
Um, and, and you've seen a lot of it. And City Hall is the place that they gather because they, they, they feel that that is an area open to everybody. And by the way, we see the same thing here in Toronto. Um, almost week after week, there is a small, and I emphasize small contingent of haters that show up at, um, uh, you know, at City Hall at Nathan Phillips Square. You know, ironically enough, at the same place where tens of thousands of Torontonians and many Ontarians showed up yesterday, the real diversity of what is Canada, not, not these crumbums, um, but that's where they show up and they try to uh, pump themselves up, make themselves much bigger, and the worst thing I believe that we can do is feed into it. So in other words, yes, let's talk about it, let's put them down with words, but those that are egged on by them and then engage them physically, uh, I, I, I feel that, frankly, for me, there's got to be a better way. The uh, yellow vesters, as they like to call themselves, uh, were prominent again on this occasion. Yes, uh, and and, and it, I, it bothers me. I mean, that whole thing was born, of course, in France, and it had to do with actually economic protests as much as anything else. But it's kind of morphed right now, and as you mentioned, into a, uh, an anti-Islamophobic, anti-immigration, anti-just about everything group. If you're if you're not a white male, uh, they don't want to have anything to do with you. That seems to be uh, the, their mantra. Well, understand how easy it is to get a yellow vest. I mean, I, I, I think the concept of the yellow vest, born a few years ago, exactly as you said, was protest. And, you know, we have a fine history of protest, as long as it's done legally and, and, and with some honor. But this yellow vest movement has turned into a racist, bigoted movement. There are some members of the yellow vest movement that have, that have engaged in online threats, including a threat to, you know, to, uh, to our own government, a threat to the prime minister of this country. Uh, that we have documented well over a thousand uh, such incidents of, of, of bigotry uh, emanating from the Yellow Vest movement. And by the way, one of the reasons, again, that, we, that I was so concerned, I think we discussed this a number of months ago, when, uh, when the leader of the opposition actually had the opportunity to be on Parliament Hill to address the uh, truck convoy that came to protest pipelines, it was filled with Yellow Vesters on Parliament Hill, at least a third of them were, and he had that opportunity to address them and make and make it clear that he does not support that kind of racism, and he chose not to. This is where we the, the, the rubber hits the road. Leaders must lead. I don't care what party they come from. When this type of thing happens, you expect to hear from your, your mayor, Fred Eisenberger. You expect to hear from others on city council. This is where they have to speak up, and this is where they have to lead. And if they don't, these people, whether it's yellow vesters or Canadian nationalists, so-called, they feel that they have open permission to do whatever they want to do. Well, when there's silence, Bernie, you have to wonder if there's complicity. And I'm not suggesting that our mayor is complicit or anybody else is. But I think that's what we are looking for. We're looking for leadership or we're looking for somebody to stand up and say, look, we're not going to tolerate this. I mean, this, this, is, this is over the line. Bill, silence feeds hatred. I've said this all the time. And you had another similar, another situation in, in, in Hamilton that is still being investigated many weeks later of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, this uh, a man that was involved with the Heritage Front. I'm not even going to say his name. We all know who it is. It's been reported quite a bit. Um, but it, you tell me that it takes weeks and weeks and weeks to investigate whether or not this individual who was working in the, you know, tech, uh, the tech part of, of, uh, of the city of Hamilton who was a former leader of the neo-Nazi Heritage Front. How did he get there? What did he have access to? Why does this take so long? Why wasn't he suspended with pay until the, uh, until the investigation was over? We know nothing. The mayor has remained silent. 
counselors for the most part. I think there was one counselor that, that, that spoke out. But we have, to, we have to not be afraid anymore. We have a, another situation in the Canadian military where we know by the Canadian military's own count that there are 33 members of neo-Nazi white supremacist groups that are being trained in the Canadian military, and our defense minister doesn't say anything. This isn't just Hamilton, Bill. This is happening across the board. People aren't speaking out, and it's going to lead to something terrible. Well, we've got to speak up and, and speak loudly about this and, and speak with one voice on this. Uh, Bernie, you have been a leader on this uh, for many, many years, and I really thank you for the time and for the perspective on this. We'll stay in touch. Anytime. I appreciate it, Bill. Excellent. Bernie Farber, of course, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. There has been a response, by the way. The mayor did respond immediately and say that there would be no uh, tolerance at all for this sort of behavior. He was quick to, to issue a, a statement about that. Uh, and the follow-up to that is a letter that uh, is signed by a number of community leaders, uh, very much along the same line. One of the co-signers on that is uh, Ruth Greenspan, who is the executive director of the John Howard Society here in Hamilton, and she joins us on the program to explain the letter. Ruth, thank you for joining us on a, uh, a very busy and a very troubling time. Uh, as Bernie Farber just said, in, in situations like this, we look to leadership uh, from, from organizations and from community leaders. Talk to us about this letter and how this came about. Absolutely. So thank you for having me on. We have been talking for a while that we are seeing hate rising in Hamilton, and this is not the Hamilton we want to be living in. And a number of us um, came together and talked about what we want is equity and diversity and inclusion, the voices of everyone mattering, and that it's time for those of us who are allies in whatever the situation is to speak up. We don't want the Hindu Samaj Temple repeat from 2001 um, when it was burnt to the ground. And we think as leaders in all cultures, races, sexualities, etc., we need to come together and say that's enough. Are we doing enough? I mean, I, I share the concern that we start to see these, and I, I don't know if it's that this is, I know that mindset has been here for quite some time, but it just seems to have gained strength in the last little while. Well, I think it isn't just in Hamilton. We're noting that it's across the world. And I think what we are doing is by beginning to all stand up and get out of our silos of it's not my community, this is the only way we're going to deal with it. We all need to stand as one. We all need to be united. And we all need to say we want an inclusive, diverse, compassionate Hamilton. Well, we already say that, and, and you know that's 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 the goal, and I think that's what we all thought we were having here. And I, I I like to think that the majority of people do feel that way, but but how do you handle something like this? I mean, uh, you know, I understand that you know you, in a situation like this, the, there is a fear factor, and some people don't want to speak up because they're they're concerned about retaliation. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that uh, that we have one mob against another mob. That's not the solution either. But uh, you know, we've we've got to find some way to to express ourselves. Uh, and, and to say that, look, that's not what this, is city, this city is all about. That's not what Hamilton is. Well, one of the things we're looking at is we're exploring education. I think many people, if it isn't affecting them, may not see um, on a personal level what's happening in the city. It's too easy to say, well, that isn't such a big issue or it doesn't affect me. And one of the things that we're really working on is more of a public education committee and more of something to reach those people who um, are against hate 
to have a forum, and I mean a nonviolent forum, not a confrontational forum, but a forum to be able to say, this is what inclusivity means to us. Well, and we had that discussion. You mentioned, the, the, of course, the attack on the temple some years ago after the 9-11 incident. Uh, and we did come together as a community. Mayor Wade, of course, uh, had a special meeting up at the mosque. I had the pleasure of being the moderator for that. We talked about this. Uh, and the mayor set up a committee of uh, members from different parts of the community. Uh, and I thought it worked. I thought it did quite well. Uh, I, I don't know that we're ever going to eliminate the mindset and the haters out there. That's always going to be there, sadly. But we need to do more to strengthen uh, the diversity and the feelings that we do have in this community. We need to speak up, uh, uh, just as they're speaking up, with uh, with their mantra. We've got to counter that with, no, this is not what you are. This is what we are as a city. And I don't know that we're doing that loudly enough. And I think you are absolutely right, Bill. And I know in the anti-violence of... Um the women's anti-violence community, they have men who stand up, those people who have power to say this is not acceptable. I think we need the same. I think we need people in this city who are not as affected, who have power, who have the ability to have privilege to stand up and say we as that group of people are not okay with hate in this city. And I think you having us on is the beginning of that. And I think we need community leaders. As you said, the mayor um, has had a statement, and I think we need statements followed by action that this is the city we want to live in. Well, and we want to be safe. I mean, you know, like I say, even if you're not a member of that community, even if that wasn't in your neighborhood, uh, we have, a, I think, a duty and a responsibility to each other uh, for public safety and to, to, uh, to know that people can feel safe and can express themselves uh, in, in things like Pride Week uh, without fear of retaliation and reprisal by groups like this. Uh, we've got to get that message out and not only get that message out, I think we have to support that message. Absolutely. And I think it's about being allies. I think it's about being upstanders instead of bystanders. A bystander stands and things happen and they don't notice it. An upstander says enough is enough, takes a stand, whether that's on social media or whether that's in written word. Again, not advocating violence whatsoever, but for many Canadians and many Ontarians and many Hamiltonians, to say we will not stand by and watch others in our community have hate spewed at them. We cannot allow that to happen. Well, I want to congratulate you and the others who signed the letter uh, for being proactive on this and starting that sort of a conversation. Uh, As I say, the mayor responded the day after he heard about this. You have responded. Now other community leaders have responded. Uh, now we're looking to see who else is going to join behind us and 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 get that message across and let people in this community know that we stand behind them as well. Uh, great job today, Ruth, and, and with that letter too. Thank you so much for the for your dedication to the community, and thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, and thanks for having us on, Bill. You betcha, Ruth Greenspan, of course, executive director of the John Howard Society. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a good news story, and uh, we could use one, I guess, after some of the events of this past weekend. And uh, it's uh, something that actually uh, Councillor Jason Farr told us about a couple of weeks ago, but he said he could not give us the details. Well, now he can, uh, because of the big announcement that's going to be happening uh, in just a couple of hours right now. Jason Farr is the Councillor for Ward 2 downtown. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Jay, thanks again for the time. Great to have you with us again. 
No problem. Did you say now I can or now I can't again? No, you will. I'm, I'm sure you will. <laughs> oh, I, I, by the way, I'm just looking at the itinerary and the list of, of, of the dignitaries that are going to be at this official announcement. Uh, you got some heavy hitters here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the film industry, as you know, Bill, is uh, supported across the nation, Ontario, and uh, uh, here at home, obviously, with our active department on this particular file, working overtime in the last couple of months in council, uh, amending uh, motions accordingly to make... Uh, what is going to be formally announced and officially announced at uh, 11 official. And yeah, we have, I know, representatives from uh, the Ontario government and uh, just a number of uh, people that are associated with uh, helping Hamilton and the consortia about to make the announcement, helping them make it happen. Well, one of the things that you kind of hinted at a couple of weeks ago when you told us this was on its way uh, was uh, community involvement. And I'm, I see here Kurt Muller is going to be there. He's, of course, the dean for the uh, McKeever School of Business and Media at Mohawk in the Virginia Axon, uh, the School of Arts at McMaster University. So uh, all the big players are here because uh, they all seem to have a stake in this. Yeah, uh, there, there'll be more to that. And I think it's uh, going to be a significant part of this announcement. There'll be a uh, many pieces to reflect upon uh, afterwards, but uh, certainly what I can say and uh, what the entire community and the CHMO listeners will learn after the announcement officially at 11 o'clock today is that uh, there's been no shortage of time shared uh, with our community partners with this consortia and folks like Mohawk, McMaster University, others, uh, many who already have stake to claim here in Hamilton and work for many years in this industry, film and television production, and the various facets of this creative industry. Uh, they, they have engaged in, at, at great length and uh, at a multitude of levels, and that includes even in the immediate neighborhood. Uh, they've uh, uh, more than uh, accommodated uh, folks' uh, questions and, and schedules and made themselves available over the course of the last month or so, I'm very appreciative of that. Well, we've talked at length, of course, over the number of years about how Hamilton is is well uh, placed now for, as you say, for site visits for for you know TV movies, etc. That, that are being made here, and there's a number of those now that you can turn on Netflix or any place else and say, "Oh, there's Hamilton," and that, that's always kind of cool. But I don't know that we ever envisioned. Uh, that we'd actually be considered to be an international hub for uh, film, television, and digital media production. I, you know, that that's a big, big leap for us to take. How walk us through how this actually happens? I mean, you know, there, there has to be phone calls, meetings. Uh, you know, there you know there have to be some feelers put out to see you know who wants what and and who's available, etc. This is a very complex process, I would think. Oh, sure, and and what land might be available for this specific yeah. use, right? So, so I, I, you know, I, I would say that if we go back three, four years, maybe three years, our Economic Development Action Plan, um, every year, uh, Glenn Norton and his crew will report to council through General Issues Committee and, and talk about uh, stretch targets and, and economic action goals uh, that we set. And uh, among a vast list, it's almost as if we throw everything on the wall and uh, accomplish what we can, and when we report back some of those stretch targets, we, we're very uh, pleased to see actually come to fruition. Uh, they're called stretch targets for a reason. We know that uh, you know we have limited uh, resources in economic development, and they're uh, always hitting above their weight when it comes to attracting uh, commercial and in- industrial uh, and, and um, obviously uh, innovative new companies and partnerships in our community. Uh, but this was one. Uh, this was one that was put on the list, uh, attract a major film studio about three years ago. Uh, it, it was a bit of a, a buzz. Obviously, there's uh, a, a, an element of, um, uh, you know, fantasy and, uh, 
you know, the community and I think even counselors uh, uh, kind of looked at that particular action item as uh, wouldn't it be nice. But, you know, once council approves that list, they go off and do what they can. And so what you've touched on, Bill, and especially the last time we talked, I think Hamilton, it's safe to say, has been particularly in the last, you know, seven to eight years, uh, very much noticed uh, from the film industry in terms of locational shooting. We are we are open arms when it comes to welcoming the film industry. We understand the economic development spinoff from welcoming these, I call them one-off shoots, but some of them can last years, to be honest with you, others days. Uh, and, and that word gets around. This is a community that's burgeoning, um, uh, and, and people start asking questions. I wouldn't say Toronto is the epicenter of the Canadian film and television production industry but certainly there's a lot of it going on there uh, hamilton is obviously within close proximity and we have a whole lot to offer and just in terms of of settings and 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 the environment that we created with our, our tourism and uh, culture office and with our our film staff that work in that office I, I think the word gets out that this is a great place to be in proximity and location to to uh in within a a, a, a footprint of uh, provincial funding that doesn't exist elsewhere in ontario uh, there's an attractiveness there, and all those pieces come together. And, and essentially here at home, the puppeteer uh, pulling all the strings is our economic development department. So they never, they've never lost track of this, this target in terms of our economic action plan. And this, well, you know, you and I have been talking about it over the course of the last six weeks or so, and, and all, obviously we can talk more publicly about exactly what this is after 11 o'clock this morning with the official announcement. It has taken some years to get to this point. It really became uh, public focus, I think, Bill, once Council amended our Barton and Tiffany plan. And there you go, I've revealed the location already. You knew I would slip. Uh, our Barton and Tiffany plan. I, I just uh, let you talk. It comes out of it. <laughs> <laughs> we made an amendment on, on the commercial side of things to permit the use of film and television uh, production. Up until six weeks ago, that never had existed. And then savvy uh, journalists such as yourself uh, realized that we should uh, start asking some questions. Why would we amend it? Well, of course, there's there's interest and today we well I, I, I tried to connect those dots the last time you were here uh, you know there's yeah. usually a reason why we want to do a change in zoning for instance uh, and it's not usually just pull out let's see what you know run it up the flagpole invariably it's been, somebody has expressed interest and there's a proposal not necessarily you know carved in stone but you guys had an idea that this was happening and they're looking for a spot uh, and and I yeah, don't know yeah. that anybody could have envisioned this this actually happening. I mean, this you know after the stadium debate, and we don't want to go down that road again. Uh, we just didn't know what was going to happen with this property. And uh, I, I uh, hindsight, I guess the you know, council made the right move by not putting the stadium there because look what you, now you got a two for here. I mean, a two for one situation. Uh, and I'm glad you brought up the situation with Toronto. And and I'm not one of these people that, that, that you know loves Hamilton and hates Toronto. I, Toronto's a great city, and Toronto is is uh, as you say, it's a magnet for an awful lot of this stuff. But invariably, it seems that every time something like this would come along, they'd look to Toronto. Uh, but they came to Hamilton this time around, and that's 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 kind of well, it's it's interesting that it's happened this way, uh, and it it actually gives us a chance to kind of put our own stake in the ground for this industry. Oh, absolutely, and you know when we've talked you and I in the past about you know the interest from Toronto with respect to you know residential or commercial development in the downtown core, there's been a tremendous amount, and that continues. Part of the equation is, you know, it's a different real estate market. Well, obviously, it continues to grow. Assessments are like Ancaster assessments, it seems, annually in Ward 2, particularly in our commercial growth center. That is an attraction. <clears throat> this is an industry that, that is growing exponentially. It's hard to track, actually, and I've tried. But with these new streaming services, 
and there seems to be different ones, and you and Adam Fridays talk about the new ones that crop up. Seems a new uh, one every week. Um, yeah, and with these streaming services come production and, and production uh, uh, affiliation in the form of new companies or companies that need facilities, and it is bursting at the seams. It, there's literally um, large Toronto uh, film and television production facilities that are very hard to get time into. So th- there's a consortia who are going to make an announcement today who really, truly understand this industry, and they un- understand not only the present, but also the near and future future as it uh, relates to film and uh, TV production. And, and there's, there's, there's no room anymore. I mean, we've heard about announcements, I think, Markham, uh, who want to build or uh, working with the consortium to build a film and television production studio. The, the uh, time is now. Uh, strike while the iron's hot. Uh, council, I think, worked with economic development staff uh, rather expeditiously to amend the motion to permit the use in the area where this consortia, these folks uh, who are well-versed on this particular file, uh, wanted to be located uh, for all the right reasons. And uh, certainly uh, it went off without a hitch, and we are where we are today uh, thanks to, to all of that good work, for sure. I, I'm just looking at, uh, as I say, the, the qualifications and the folks that are on this, uh, this board here, this consortium, this uh, Aon Studio Group, uh, that are actually going to be making the announcement with you at the city uh, down at the, this site uh, a little bit later on this morning. Uh, and this covers all facets. This is not going to be a, a building that's going to sit there empty and say, well, once in a while we get a production that comes in here. These guys, as you mentioned, with all these streaming services that are coming online these days, they need product. And and I don't know mm-hmm. that you guys can turn the stuff out fast enough for, for those things to start rolling out to with, with all these services that are going to be available, plus the existing media uh, that's already there looking for product as well. So, I mean, it's a there's a ready-made market for what what's going to be happening at this site. Oh, all these new channels and, and streaming services, uh, it's not all Happy Days reruns, right? It's its new product that continues to impress and win Emmys and international awards. And, and, and it's studios like this that are producing this, this content for the Hulus and the, and, and the, the Vibes and the, and the Netflixes and, and all the other ones that are, are, are cropping up. Disney now with its own streaming service with Disney Exclusive, and I'm sure they'll be producing a lot more than they already do. And, and this is not one, I, sh- I can mention this, this is another little bit of a giveaway. My understanding is anyway, Bill, this isn't uh, a group that is associated to any one service. This is uh, uh, the, the building of, of all of the, the bricks and mortar needed to do the kind of uh, mainstream, uh, um, uh, following all the new technologies, uh, up-to-date, state-of-the-art, innovative uh, facilities required for all of these different services. So it's, it's uh, definitely not associated to any one, to my understanding, and which, which obviously... Uh, puts us in a much better stead of of keeping that growing and active in that in, the, in that particular set of lands. Well, I know this is probably going to be one of the speeches that's going to be made, but I, I just want to shed some light on this as well, and that's why I mentioned Mohawk and McMaster as as being part of this. And I'm not sure how big a role that's going to be. I guess that'll you know be exposed when when these guys make their speeches in about an hour and a half or so. But that's a key element to this: the fact that these these two institutions already have programs uh, that are 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 basically training people to be in that industry had to be a plus for these guys to say look at Hamilton they, they, they just, these guys got their act together already there's already uh, you know there's a, a pool of people there that they can draw from to, to actually fill some of the jobs that are going to be created here 
Yeah, there, there's a, a great um, number of synergies that are going to be part of the announcement today. And I actually don't have my head around all of them as it relates to some of these community partners, particularly in our, our uh, post-secondary education. But uh, they, they've worked very hard. Uh, they've built some relationships. Some of the folks that are involved with uh, this consortia uh, had established relationships, so they know Hamilton really well. They know the players, whether it's education or other creative industries that they've worked with in the past. No strangers uh, to this area, and uh, I think uh, because they've been able over the years to nurture those uh, partnerships and relationships, having worked together even on projects, uh, that that's a really crucial and important piece because you know we're 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 throwing out numbers five hundred one thousand fifteen hundred jobs that could essentially grow. This is a large parcel, and there's a whole bunch of opportunities now that we've um, amended the zoning, uh, not only for residential but for the the film and television production facilities required in in the in the northern piece of the property, which is many many acres. And um, you know if you're if you're well versed. And you have the relationships and the partnerships that that means, you know, not just jobs, but I think opportunities for on the job training, which is something we talk about all the time, especially when we're uh, working with the trades as a council, when we can provide those opportunities. We talk about it with LRT as well. We have opportunities there for on the job training and and building our our already uh, fairly robust or uh, well-touted skilled trades workforce in, in Hamilton. It's a new trade. One of the uh, the announcements uh, that I, Aon has made here in kind of preparation for what's going to be happening later on this morning is is placing Hamilton as what they call an international hub for film, television, and digital. That that indicates to me, Jay, that there's the possibility here of expansion, not just within this company and this organization, but the, the possibility that others may decide, hey, this is a pretty good place for us to set up our business, too. Uh, and we could go from a hub to a cluster. And then uh, uh, that way you, you create a, a real, I guess, a foundation for the industry to start to grow. In, in different parts of the city. Absolutely, and that's why you can, clearly you know, I haven't been this excited uh, talking to you in a while because there, the sky's the limit on the good that this can bring to the community from the neighborhood level and the community that's being created on what is now essentially, Bill, and honestly, a, a, a vast wasteland of a former you know, toxic industrial site that, that uh, has a storied, uh, infamous history in terms of whether you want to talk about council debates or or, or uh, Mr. Madden and the mysterious barrels and all of that property down there. There hasn't been a whole lot of good news coming out of it. So from the community level and how this area is going to be transformed and welcoming and, and, and adhere to the urban design principles that already existed in our Barton Tiffany plan, that's great. But then you add all of the layers of the jobs and the, the potential for the hubs that you're talking about uh, and, and the and the, the the creation of uh, you know a whole new well a very much robustly enhanced uh, area of film television and digital production in this city that we you know while we threw it on the wall with all the other items with the uh, economic development action plan and it seemed uh, rather glamorous at the time and, and we talked about it a little bit about three or four years ago uh, the fact that it's a reality now. There's just so many positive spinoffs from this, and you're right. I mean, this is one company, fairly large, uh, an extremely um, important project, a large project that means a lot for our community, but uh, it will be successful. I feel very confident in saying that, and that the the spinoff effects from other companies wanting to be part of uh, this community and, and get on that same international map for film and television production I mean, that's huge. That's huge for our city. It, 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 it parallels in, in some ways. I mean, it's not quite the number 
that Amazon was promising with 50,000 employees into the community, but it parallels in some way, it harkens the, those thoughts of where our headspace was as a, as, a, as a council last term when we went after the Amazon bid. This is big stuff, and it's innovative and popular and growing as a burgeoning industry that we're going to very soon be officially announcing that we're attached to. And, you know, that, that's great news for, for a former industrial site where it used to be big. Well, let me, yeah, let me remind people about that. And by the way, the, the, the Amazon business, as we found out later on, was nothing more than smoke and mirrors anyway. I mean, uh, Bezos never had any intention of moving anything anywhere. He just, uh, he, he got publicity mm. for a few days. Uh, and I guess that's what he was shooting for. So, but this is real. <laughs> this is this is something you can reach out and touch and Very see. Uh, and your point about what used to be there. Now, you're an East End guy, and I don't know how often you ventured over to the other end of town, Jay, when you were growing up. But this place was one of the most toxic pieces of land that you'd find anywhere. You had the Lax property right down behind Dunder and Castle, and then you had this piece of property here. And nobody was going to touch these things. And look at how this council has transformed that area of the city. You've got the Waterfront Trail and Bayfront Park, which is magnificent. I know it's got some challenges because of the, the flooding, but that's being dealt with. And now you've got this property. And, and the transformation that has occurred here is remarkable, really. Yeah, so so as a young man in the 80s, one of my part-time jobs when I wasn't a soupy weekends and evenings was at Route Canada right at the corner of Queen and right on the Barton Tiffany Lance. There you go. And uh, Stewart. So, you know, and we would overlook uh, the Ream plant and a lot of the industries at the time were still maybe not thriving but employing people. And it, it, it's a transformational opportunity for us now. A community is going to be created in a higher tech industry and a in a in a burgeoning field. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure today at some point I'll probably reflect on, you know, where we've come in, in my time and being part of that, that community, just uh, working in the, in the, you know, the dockyards over at the shipping and receiving area of a company long gone called Root Canada. But yeah, it's, it's very real. It's very exciting. And I think once we hear the official announcements and, and those announcements attached to the announcement today, uh, a lot of people are going to be, I think they'll very, very excited. Well, that'll be in about an hour's time, and of course, CHML will be there, and we'll bring all the details to it a little bit later on. Uh, it's just, I mean, the few that you haven't leaked already, anyway, Jay. We'll, uh, are, are you <laughs> sending? Are you sending Ken Mann? Because if they see him, they might make him a movie star. You never know. You never know. The long distance uh, reporter. I, I can see the movie title right now. Uh, anyway, I thanks like so it. much for this. I know you got to get down there for the uh, the the big opening, so uh, we'll let you go, and we'll talk about this later on. Thanks again, Jay. Thank you, Bill. That's uh, War Two Councillor, Downtown Councillor Jason Farr. Big announcement, 11 o'clock this morning at the old Barton Tiffany Lands. And uh, we're going to be in show business. Well, we already are, but this is actually taking it to the next level. Good news story. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's uh, uh, a decision to be made in Ottawa. I, I think the decision's already been made. They just haven't announced it. But at their weekly cabinet meeting up in Ottawa today, the uh, the Trudeau cabinet is going to make an announcement about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, this, is, of course, has been something that's been going on for the longest time. Uh, and uh, they think that they're finally at the stage where they can move ahead with this or not move ahead with this and make a decision based on some of the court decisions that have been made. So what what are the pluses, what are the minuses, uh, deciding which way the government's going to go on this? Ian Lee is at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hey, Ian, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Uh, thanks, Bill. This is a, this is a big day, and this is this is a decision which I just said in my preamble. I think they've already made, but they're going to announce it today. That's going to have huge economic implications. Yes, I agree completely. I do believe that the decision has already been made. Uh, Bill Morneau, for example, the finance minister, is scheduled to speak tomorrow in Calgary, and I cannot imagine that he would be going out there the day after if they were about to turn down uh, the pipeline because it would just enrage uh, people in Alberta. 
So I think we can safely say, uh, predict, that they are going to uh, announce the approval of the pipeline. And secondly, I do agree with you. It's uh, going to be momentous for two separate reasons. One's the, let's call it the political, cultural, environmental, that the, uh, this government is finally, finally, uh, you know, put, drawn a line in the sand and saying, yes, we support pipelines, absolutely. And then secondly, of course, is the economic, because the, uh, the and I'm a very strong supporter of pipelines. I will fully disclose that. I do not consult to anybody. I don't have any investments. I believe this is in national interest of Canada, not just Alberta, because we've got to get that oil out to Tidewater. Uh, and remember, if I can point this out, oil and natural gas are far cleaner than coal. And much of Asia, starting with China, is heavily uh, consuming coal. And that's why China is the number one emitter in the world. And if we ever want to get a handle on GHG emissions, in my view, we've got to get much cleaner oil and gas out to Asia to get them to switch from the coal. So we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars. And for those who say, oh, that just goes to the oil companies, that is absolutely not true. Stephen Gordon, professor at Laval, has shown the benefit to governments and to incomes in Canada, and it accounts for a very, uh, very significant part of the standard of living of Canadians. So this is not something that just benefits oil workers in Alberta. It benefits professors in Ottawa and universities, too. There's another side to this, too, and I, I know this, uh, I'm connecting some dots here, though, Ian. Uh, we're not having a whole lot of success right now with the Chinese government because of negotiations. You know, a lot of that stems from the Huawei situation. But if all of a sudden this this oil was made available to them and uh, much more accessible because of the completion of this pipeline, uh, that's that's another card in our deck that we could say, look at, you know, now we need to talk trade here, guys, because you need what we've got. Exactly so. And, and But I just want to point something out, Bill. You're quite right. And I'm not suggesting, you know, let's put all our eggs in the Chinese basket, to use that famous phrase. Um, Oil is, is fungible, to use a, a lovely academic term or financial term. And fungible means that one molecule of oil in a given class of oil is identical to another molecule of oil. And I mean by that, and that's why I buy gasoline, and we all buy gasoline from different companies because it's essentially all the same. Um, we can sell that oil to anybody who needs oil, but it's Asia. It's not just China. All the countries of Asia need more oil to substitute for coal. they got to get off coal, and it's not just China. So, yes, this will give us an advantage to deal with the Chinese because they have said repeatedly publicly they want our resources and specifically our oil and gas, natural gas. So, yes, this will, um, I think, um, allow Mr. Trudeau at the G20 to maybe this will be the, uh, the icebreaker, the conversation opener to start a bigger conversation about the overall relationship. Well, and I think that there's a realization on the government's part right now that, as you mentioned, we need pipelines. I mean, this is a product that we have. Uh, it's essential to our economy, and we've got to get that product to market. And and look at, uh, we, we don't want like Magnetic again. We don't want the you know these uh, rail cars. I mean that that has to be part of it, I suppose. Yep. But pipelines yep. are the best way to move this product. That, I think we've already decided that. I know there are some people that are still going to be philosophically opposed to it, but yes. the reality here is that this is the best way to go, and this is how we have to go. And I'm, it's it's frustrating, I guess, that we it's taken so long to finally come to that decision. Yes. In fact, I have studied the data, hard, 
hard empirical data from the National Energy Board, from Natural Resources Canada, from the U.S. Uh, department that regulates pipelines in the states called FIMSA. And there is absolutely no question of all, question at all that, all, uh, that pipelines are the safest way by far to ship any kind of hazardous liquid materials. The boogeyman that's been raised over and over by environmentalists of, oh, it's dangerous, it might, you know, it might, somebody might die if there's a pipeline explosion. I went and looked up, and this sounds rather macabre, so please bear with me, and, and I don't mean it all in any way offensively, but I did look up the mortality data from different types of activities. 450 Canadians die annually, tragically, in water accidents, in swimming pools, in lakes, and rivers. Nobody is suggesting that we ban and close all the swimming pools of Canada and the rivers and lakes of Canada because 450 people die annually. Nobody dies in pipeline accidents annually. You can look at bicycles or pedestrians walking on the sidewalk. Far more die walking in Canada than die in pipelines. Uh, automobile accidents, 2,000 Canadians a year tragically die in automobile accidents, and nobody is suggesting let's ban all the cars and all the trucks in Canada. So my point is, yes, there's always a risk, but the risks with pipelines are infinitesimally tiny compared to the risk of swimming pools, bicycles, motorcycles, cars, and trucks. And we accept those risks, much higher risks, with those other vehicles and other forms of transportation. And so I think it's just a, a straw man, a boogeyman, when we say, oh, there's great risk of pipelines or tankers. The risk is unbelievably small and tiny. The other argument, and it gets into a, the, the philosophical end of things here, Ian, but I mean, it's you know it's going to be part of this discussion, is that we shouldn't be building these things at all. I mean, there, there are some that go to the extreme. I mean, those that support the NDP's Leap Manifesto that's still out there someplace, yeah. Yeah, they just want to shut the industry down. You know, plug that and, and, and just stop extracting oil altogether. That would be foolhardy. We know that. That would be economically yeah. tragic if, if for us to do that. Uh, but the the other element to this, and, and we hear this from people like Premier Horgan out in British Columbia, is they're just philosophically opposed to these ideas because they think it's all dirty. Uh, and I listen, I support, and I know from the conversations I've had with you, I support, as do you, looking for alternative sources of energy. We need to do yes. that, but we're not yes. there yet. In fact, again, I've looked at IEA, the International Energy uh, Authority or Agency. It is not a private company. It is owned by the Western OECD governments. Our own Minister of Finance, Department of Finance, sends its annual contribution of several million dollars to support it, like the IMF, like the World Bank. They're supported by the OECD governments. Uh, so this is not in the pocket of the oil industry. The IEA is nonprofit think a government think tank, let's call it, and they produce endless studies. They're very pro-green, they're very pro-carbon tax, and they're very pro-alternatives. They just published another report. They publish endless reports, and it was actually reported in the Globe and Mail. And they said there is, in very polite, uh, scholarly, economic language, because these are economists with advanced degrees and mathematicians and all that sort of thing, they said there isn't a snowball's chance in hell, they didn't use those words, by the way, that we are going to be uh, off of fossil fuels by 2050. They said, yes, alternatives are growing, and they're growing every year, and so people say, oh, look, that, that it's going to take over fossil fuels. But they said the economies around the world are growing, and their demand for energy goes up every year, and all of the increase in, in uh, alternatives is just being taken up by the incremental growth around the world. 
They're actually saying that the existing oil and gas resources and alternatives, energies, is not enough to fuel the growth going forward. In other words, we're going to be using fossil fuels and alternatives right through to 2050 and possibly beyond. The idea that we can shut down oil and gas, which accounts for 80% of energy usage in the world, including Canada and the United States, is just a pipe dream, no pun intended. We cannot, especially in a cold climate like Canada, second coldest country in the world after Russia, the idea that we have some magical solution in January when it's minus 25 or minus 35 in Ottawa to heat our homes is just nonsense. It's not true. The other element to this, too, that has to be taken into consideration is, is that reality that the industry itself, uh, and by that I mean the automotive industry and the uh, they're, they're moving scientifically ahead on stuff. Now, a lot of that work's going on right across the road from our radio station here at the uh, McMaster Automotive Research Center. Yeah. Uh, and and I, it's way above my head, you know, so what they're doing. But cars are more energy efficient than they were 15, 20 years ago. That old oh. phrase of gas guzzler is really non-existent now. It's not like that anymore. Uh, they do the best they can to try to clean things up. The carbon footprint has been decreasing. Uh, so, you know, as you mentioned, there's there's a lot of false stories that are going out there about now. The other one, remember, what, 10, 15 years ago was peak oil, that we were going to run out yeah. of oil. Yeah. And we found that yeah. to just, that, that was a false uh, a, a argument that came forward. Too. We've been inundated with these, and I think it's it's colored an awful lot of people's opinions about this. You're right. Just to come back to the efficiency uh, point, and you're absolutely right. I bought my very first car. I was, I think, I was 18 or 19, and this was obviously uh, 40 odd years ago. And I bought a used, very used uh, Ford Mustang, and I think I got five miles a gallon. <laughs> I now I'm sitting to talk to you on the phone. I pulled my car over and parked the car. I'm driving my Honda Civic which is getting probably, in American terminology, because they use miles per gallon, I'm probably getting 30 to 35 miles a gallon, not 5 miles a gallon. Our fleet averages have gone up dramatically. The housing standards, you know, once upon a time you built houses with no insulation in the basement. Now that's illegal. Our housing standards have gone up, 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 year after year after year in Canada for our windows, for our roofs, for our walls. Our, the energy efficiency of our appliances. My first air conditioner was a gas guzzler, although it didn't use gas, it used electricity. The, the latest appliances, fridges and stoves and air conditioners, are just a quantum leap over what we were doing using 20 and uh, 15 and 20 years ago. So this idea that, you know, we've been just sitting back and, you know, consuming energy but profligately and irresponsibly is not true. Uh, and very quickly, I'm Bill, because I want to get this point across, because people say, well, then how come we're not meeting our Paris Accords, and why is it we're having so much trouble? There's a very good answer. It's because, and I do support immigration, I want to get that out there, but every three years, we bring in a million people, new people. That's the size of Ottawa, my city. We add an, an Ottawa every three years, and every human being, whether they're new or old Canadians or in-between Canadians, consumes energy. And, and produces GHG emissions. That's the nature of uh, a human existence. And so we're producing more GHG every year, not because we're inefficient. We're actually more and more efficient on a per-person basis, but because the population is growing every year, we're producing more in absolute terms of GHG. And that's because everybody around the world, understandably, wants to come to Canada because it is 
a paradise to many, many people around the world. And, and so this is a paradox that people may not realize because environmentalists won't tell us this story. We're growing every year in emissions, not because we're profligate and irresponsible. It's because our population is growing and because we strongly, uh, there's a consensus that we support immigration in Canada. But every new person can, and every existing person consumes energy, which produces GHG. That's why our emissions go up year by year. Well, uh, let's keep in mind here, just in perspective, as we await this announcement, I mean, the government bought this damn thing last year. They bought the whole project. So, I mean, it'd be foolhardy for them to turn around and say, we're not going to do it now. So, I I, I think we're going to get the positive thumbs up from these guys later on today. Uh, Ian, thanks as always. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you very much. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.